The teaching text today comes from Matthew chapter 20, 20 through 28. Then the mother of Zebedee's son came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked him for a favor. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. What you, excuse me, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the man, Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord God. Thanks be to God. All right. Thanks, Scott. Y'all can be seated. Amen. In response uh, to poor living conditions and a, a crystallized sense of, of collective discontent, there's a group of citizens in the North African nation of Tunisia that decided to protest against their government. And using the power of social media, they really got things moving and they ultimately overthrew their longtime president. And this was in early, late 2010, and it began what became known as the Arab Spring. It started in Tunisia. It went to Egypt with the, the Egyptian uprisings and the fall of Hosni Mubarak. It went to places uh, like Yemen, to Libya with the removal of Muammar Gaddafi, and then ultimately went to places like Syria where Bashar al-Assad was the president and is still the president and ruled over his people with a really heavy hand. And Syria became especially complicated, uh, not only because Assad was, was so cruel to his people, but also because of the influx of ISIS fighters who were trying to establish their caliphates, their, their uh, Muslim Islamic empire in, in Syria. And it became a very complicated situation because some people talk about how it became a proxy war between the United States and Russia, the Russians siding with the Syrians and the United States siding with the rebels. And it became a bloody, bloody mess. Six million people became known as what they call IDPs, internally displaced peoples, which means that within their own nation, they were driven from their homes. So, you know, you live in Jinx and there's war, and so you fly, you, know, you go to Coweta. Six million people uh, were, were fleeing and going to different places within the country, but there, there was another six million people who left the country. A very, very, very tiny percentage of those people ended up in the United States. Many went to Europe, but lots went to neighboring countries like Jordan and Lebanon. Lebanon is a country the size of Rhode Island, which previously had a population of 4 million people, 500,000 of whom were Palestinian refugees. And in a tiny little country the size of Rhode Island with 4 million people, 2 million Syrian refugees came into the country living in, you know, a, a, a fertile valley known as the Bekaa Valley, camped out in tents. There's 600,000 people living in these informal tent settlements in the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon. A very complicated and very painful situation. 
I, for whatever reason, I, I mean, I keep up with the news, and I was, I was, uh, I paid attention to the Arab Spring. I watched everything I could about, uh, you know, Mubarak and the Egyptian uprising. And one day in 2016, I was sitting in my office at Asbury, and I was watching this New York Times live video. It was a video of this family in Aleppo, a family that looked not unlike my family, with little kids running down the street to avoid shelling. There's bombing going around with little children hand in hand with, with mom and dad running down the street. And my heart was gripped. And, and I was just like overcome. And I, I, I hustled over to the prayer room at Asbury. And I don't do this very often, but I was just heaving, crying in prayer. Because I was thinking, what if that were my kid? What if that had been my kid running, you know, holding onto my hand, running down the streets of a city that's being shelled or that's being bombed? And God gripped my heart. Two months later, Emily and I were ended up at this conference in Denver where uh, we were invited to a private dinner with the president of World Vision. Uh, he's, he's just outgoing, Richard Stearns. We were with, we were with Rich, with the, some of his senior staff, and we were with this Sunni cleric named Sheikh Mohammed who had helped open up parts of northern Lebanon so that World Vision could do humanitarian work. And we were, here, we were there because we were privileged to know one of the organizers of this conference. And so we end up with this dinner uh, it, with, with these you know, powerful people. World Vision is the largest humanitarian organization in the world, 45,000 global employees. And we're hearing from Rich and we're hearing from Sheikh Mohammed uh, the plight of Syrians living in these tent settlements. You're not far from the mountains where there's snow in the winter and you're, you're, you're in a tent. You're on a, on a concrete slab, hopefully, with muddy streets. Uh, it's, it, it broke our heart. And what broke our heart even more was you were hearing from the World Vision senior staff that the United States, the U.S. Christians were doing nothing about this. They were having an impossible time raising money for Syrian refugees. It had become too politicized, and so the church wasn't talking about it. And as a result, there were millions and millions of people who were suffering and who weren't having basic needs met. And so Emily and I leave this dinner, and we think, well, what on earth are we going to do with this information? We're not rich. We're not powerful. At the time, I was the youngest and junior most associate at, at, a, at a church, I'm not like politically connected, and we think, what on earth are we going to do? And so I had just read this book that I referenced last week called Playing God by Andy Crouch, the book that inspired this conversation about power. And I was thinking, well, I'm not the guy in charge. I'm not, I don't have like, you know, our legislators on speed dial, but what power do we have? I thought, well, I'm not the senior pastor, but I know him. I could probably talk to him. And uh, I do have the internet. I could go find, like, the email address for our legislators. And so we just took some steps to see what we could do. I also know a bunch of pastors across the country, just friends who went to college with. I thought, what can we do? So I go to the, the landing page for uh, Bridenstine, who was our congressman at the time, and for Senator Lankford, who's still one of our representatives. And I put in a general inquiry for their websites. Hey, I'd love to talk with our, our representative about the Syrian refugee crisis. I'm talking to friends at World Vision, and I think, hey, what if I, if I could get together a group of pastors who care about this, could we go to Lebanon and meet some folks? And, uh, and as the months went by, we organized a trip. Um, different pastors in town from, from Colorado, from different places went. We went to uh, Beirut. We went into the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon. I got to sit in the tents of 
families who had fled. I got to meet Abdul Karim, who was special needs and 12 years old. He was sitting in a bucket in the middle of a little muddy street when I met him. And I got to talk with his mom about what is it like to care for a special needs child when you're a refugee and when you're living in a tent. I got to meet with families who had owned vineyards back in Syria, but now they were living in a tent and they'd lost children on the way. And it broke our heart. I came back and, and you know, you never, you can, you can just try stuff, you know. And so I kept emailing my legislators and I said, hey, can I like have lunch with these people? And so Bridenstine's people got back and I had lunch with Bridenstine. I kept pestering Langford's people and I had breakfast with Langford for like 16 minutes. It was really fast. We ended up doing this refugee weekend at Asbury. Uh, other churches in town, the church at Battle Creek, did a big refugee weekend as a result of this. And I learned through the experience, I don't have all the power. I learned through the experience, like we didn't accomplish nearly, nearly like a percentage of what I hoped that we could do in terms of raising funds, raising awareness, went on the news to talk about it. But we did more than I thought we could. And I realized it was a learning opportunity for me that I had more power than I originally imagined. And we all have power. Power to make a phone call, power to advocate, power to act, power to do stuff. We've all got power. Last week we said power is not a four-letter word, or in the beginning it was not so. Power at its most basic level is the ability to take meaningful action. It's part of being a person who's made in God's image. And through sin and rebellion, power has become corrupted, and we all know the abuses of power. It is, and it should be, and it can be something that is redeemed, once again, part of God's good creation. Power is the ability to take meaningful action. It's the, the purpose of power is to make more of the good world that God made. Um, it's to dignify and multiply and diversify and honor and protect and the, to promote the flourishing of others. Power is given so that you can help things flourish and blossom and grow. It's seen most purely through creative power. And last week, we gave examples of creative power and how that leads to flourishing and to building relationships. We talked about nurturing power and about healing power. Using our power the abilities and the skills and the resources and the faculties that God has given us to join God in the renewal of all things and the healing. He's given us power for that purpose. After last week, I got an email from Meredith, who's part of our church, and Meredith was hearing, you know, uh, that, that power was given to steward creation, that part of our power is about being good stewards of the world that God gave us. And so she started thinking, what does that mean to apply that to my life? And she started thinking, if I believed that God gave me power to help steward creation, what would be the implications of that? And so she wrote me this amazing email about thinking about ethically sourced food. If, if power is given to help steward creation, she was just feeling it's not okay for me, speaking for herself, to eat, uh, to eat meat from sources like where the animals have not been treated with dignity, have not been killed humanely. And she had this amazing conversation about, you know, where do I get ethically sourced food? And maybe I should just stop eating meat altogether. I loved it, and I share it with you because, because Meredith was thinking about what are the implications of believing this? And I wish that everybody for every sermon would think, like, what are the implications of believing this and seeing it all the way through? I loved it. So last week we talked about the proper use of power. Today we're going to talk briefly about the abuse of power. The abuse of power. And so in Matthew chapter 20 in the text that Scott just read, Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. 
And just before the text that Scott read, Jesus reminds the disciples what's about to go down in Jerusalem in the city. That he's going to be arrested, he's going to be tortured, he's going to be handed over to the Romans, and he's going to be crucified. He's going to die, but then he's going to be raised to life. And at that time, with a really keen sense of comedic timing, the mother of James and John comes up to Jesus, and I'm sure her boys put her up to it, and asks a, a pretty audacious question says, hey, we heard that you're going to come back to life part. When you do that, when you enter your glory, when you sit on your throne, would you let my boys sit on either side of you? Is this a good time to ask that question? It's like, no, it is not. Um, he asks, they ask for a position of privilege in his kingdom, to be at the right and the left. Matthew Henry said, we know not what we ask when we ask for the glory of wearing the crown, and ask not for the grace to bear the cross on our way to it. In that moment, Jesus asks the boys, because those are the ones, James and John, who, who put their mom up to it, say, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they're like, yeah, it's just like this. It's like, that's not what I'm talking about. He's referring to Old Testament, Old Testament imagery of like drinking the cup of God's wrath. Jesus is talking about suffering can you drink the cup of suffering that I'm going to? And I'm like, well, yeah, you don't get it. And then he says prophetically, you are indeed going to drink the drink, drink the cup that I'm going to. You're going to suffer for being my disciple. But to be at my right or my left is not mine to grant. Jesus says, I'm under authority. I can't give that away. He affirms that they're going to suffer, but he leaves them in the dark about any possibility of future glory. And when the other disciples hear about this audacious ask by James and John, they get indignant, they get frustrated, not because they were the ones they asked, but because they were the ones who asked first, and because they asked because they wanted to lord over the other disciples. All 12 had walked together with Jesus the whole time, but James and John wanted to be special and high in command. Jesus uses this moment to call the disciples together. It's a really great teachable moment. You know, we've, we've talked about Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me because I'm humble and gentle. And Jesus is a humble and a gentle teacher with the disciples here. They don't have a clue what they're talking about. And he calls them together and he goes, okay, look, you know the Gentiles, the Romans, you know the way that they rule? They rule over people in a commanding kind of way. They exercise authority over people. You got that in your mind? And they're picturing Caesar in his palace. They're picturing him on a throne with servants all around him at his beck and call. They're picturing the armies who go to the ends of the earth to fight and to die for the Caesar. Jesus says, okay, you got that in your mind? Well, if you're going to be my disciple, this is verse 26, he said, not so with you. So you know how power works with the Gentiles? For those of you who are following me, it is nothing like that. The pomp and the grandeur of Caesar ill fits the disciples. It's worth noting if you have a paper Bible, um, it says lord it over and exercise authority over. You could underline the word over there. It's, it's, it's alpha language. It's dominance language. It's I'm on top of you. It's elevating self and dominating, coercing, demanding. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, it's not like that. He says, don't hunger for that kind of dominating power, even for the purposes that are good. If you've been coming for a bit, you know that I have been reading the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I finished it. 
So good, every time. I've now started the Silmarillion, which is next level nerd. I'll tell you how it goes. It'll work its way into every sermon anyway. So, uh, but there's the ring in the Lord of the Rings represents a kind of dominating power, dominating power. And the wise, embodied by a character like Gandalf, know they can't be trusted with it. They know that even for good purposes, it would, it would be twisted with them and within them, and they couldn't be trusted with dominating power. No one can. The ones who can be trusted with power are those who lust after it the least and who fear it the most. So Jesus contrasts the Caesar imagery of dominating over, ruling over, exercising authority over, um, with the way that greatness is defined in the kingdom of God. And he gives his own personal mission statement. This is verse uh, 28. He said, The Son of Man, referring to himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You've got Caesar who is ruling over, but you have Jesus who is submitting under the will of his Father. He's not come to dominate. He's come to serve. It's so important that we talk about power because all of us have it, way more than you realize. You exercised power by coming to church. You exercised power by having children. You exercised power by, by your vocation. You exercised power in, in multitudinous ways. We all have power. And when we think about the way that we're stewarding our power, we face, we're at a crossroads. We're at a crossroads when we think about how we use power. It's, it's the power to act and initiate and advocate and speak and do and take action. And at this crossroads, we can go either the way of Caesar or we can go in the way of Jesus. And Jesus sets up this dichotomy, the way of Caesar, the way of Jesus. The way of Caesar is to use power to lord over others, to dominate others. The way of Jesus is to serve under. Even Jesus served under the will of his Father. Uh, and this, this is a, what you could call an under-attitude. Whether you're a janitor or a CEO or a teacher or a parent, all of us who follow Jesus should adopt this under-attitude. This is Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Excuse me. As working for the Lord. Whether you work for and, and, and report to a board or nobody, all of us should take the attitude that we are working for the Lord. The way of Caesar is dominating over. The way of Jesus is serving under. The way of Caesar leads to personal benefit, but the way of Jesus goes to the benefit of others. And Jesus summarized this with his mission statement. I came not to be served. That's the way of Caesar. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's the way of Jesus. The way of Caesar leads to personal glory. I'm in this for me. I'm leveraging the power that I have uh, so that I will get acclaim and honor and recognition and like and fame. The way of Jesus leads to God's glory. Now, forgive me for picking on a pastor, but what is wrong with this image right here? Come on, it's kind of hilarious. It's all about Jesus. Boom! Pastor and his wife said Pastor Mark every year since 1995. It's almost all about Jesus, right? I found, like, I was laughing out loud when I came across this image, and if I ever do anything like this, punch me in the face, okay? Will do. I don't, yeah, anybody can, okay? Um, 
The way of Caesar is for, is for personal glory. The way of Jesus is for the glory of somebody else. Uh, I don't know what story that's telling, but I think there's a confused message in that image. When you take a desire to lord over other people, and when you combine it with this lust for personal glory, what you get is idolatry. It's a biblical word. You get idolatry. When you take a desire to lord over others, and you add to it a lust for personal glory, you get idolatry. You make a little god of yourself. And idolatry always leads to injustice. Idolatry always leads to injustice. So let me put this a little bit differently, okay? Uh, at the core of every person, whether you're the president of the PTA or a Quiznos shift manager or you sitting in the pew or me holding a microphone, at the core of every person, there's a, a wound that we inherit, an insecurity, a remnant of the fall, something that says, I need something or someone outside of me to tell me I'm okay, to tell me that I'm valuable, that I have worth. And that wound should be for us an internal tell, an internal nudge that points us elsewhere and upward to our Creator, who's the one who tells us where we have worth and how we have value. That wound is ultimately healed and washed in the waters of baptism, where in baptism we hear the voice of our Father say the words we long to hear, you're my son, you're my daughter, I love you, and I'm okay with you, I'm pleased with you. That wound is supposed to be a tell or a nudge to get us to listen, to look up, to pay attention to our Creator. But if it doesn't, it leads us to behaviors to fill that hole, to address that wound. Sometimes it shows up as hurting and dominating others, but it's all of those behaviors that we, we uh, go to to find some level of approval. I love the movie. Oh, where did that go? I love the movie uh, Tombstone. Anybody like Tombstone? I quote Tombstone really often. Well, I don't know where that went, but that's all right. There's this conversation between Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday, who are buds, and they're talking about their enemy, Johnny Ringo. And Wyatt Earp goes, you know, what's the deal? with a guy like Johnny Ringo. Why does he do the things that he does? And Doc Holliday goes, because Johnny Ringo's got a hole right down the middle of himself and, enough, and there's no amount of killing or cussing or hurting that can fill it. And he says, so what's he after? Revenge. Revenge for what? For being born. It's such a good line. Um, a position of power is a terrible way and a terrible place to find and identity. Now, it'd be easy to talk about, uh, about people in power or about, you know, even about uh, the president obsessing over approval ratings and using superlatives, you know, this is the best ever, the highest attended ever, or talking to reporters or other world leaders. You know I'm doing a great job, right? It's really easy to talk about other people, to talk about the president who's used as a kind of scapegoat or a form of work avoidance so that we don't have to talk about ourselves. Be easy to talk about other people. But it's less fun to talk about our own deep need for approval, our own gaping wound that we try to fill with likes or compliments that we just like file away uh, for those days when we don't know who we are. Looking, we're doing everything to look up, look down, look left or right to anyone who breathes just to tell us that we're okay and they like us and we're going to be fine. It's like Michael Scott, do you need to be liked? No, I don't need to be liked. I want to be liked. I like to be liked. I have to be liked. But it's not like this need, you know, like my need to be praised. Uh, 
That wound in each of us, if it's not tended, festers. It'll fester. And because we, because we are powerful, because we are created in God's image, that woundedness grows into something that will harm ourselves and harm others. And taken to its extreme, the way of Caesar, desperate for control and glory and approval, at its extreme will harm and will ultimately kill others. So how on earth do we keep ourselves from abusing the power that we've been given? How, what does it take to wisely steward our power? And I have three little encouragements that all begin with the word cultivate, cultivate, like a word I like. One, as I've referenced, uh, as a way to steward our power, we need to cultivate an under-attitude, an under-attitude. The Caesars want to lord over, but Jesus is to serve under, to cultivate an under-attitude. Ultimately, for all people, that, that wound is tended by submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ, by putting our lives under his care and trusting ourselves to him, to let the Lord Jesus tell us who we are, to ask Jesus how he wants you to steward your power because you're ultimately working for him. Whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Work for him, not, not for human beings. Two, I love this. This will be a sermon series at some point. Cultivate a rich, secret life. Cultivate a rich, secret life. And here's the idea. Public power, whether people see your power or we all have power, needs to be anchored by private disciplines. What keeps our power from going like haywire and out of hand? Being anchored by private disciplines. Now, I want you to imagine that someday you die, and you will die, all of us will, uh, and people are raiding through our stuff. What story are they going to find to be true about your private life? What if instead of finding stashes of like porn magazines or that you had a gambling addiction or, or that you were just incredibly materialistic, what if instead of finding a negative story out about you after you died, what if people found that you were way more generous, way more faithful, way more prayerful, way more orderly in the way that you lived, a life that looked like it was submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? What if when you died, people discovered, oh my gosh, they were even better than I imagined? Wouldn't you love breaking news? You know, so-and-so is an even better person than we thought. Uh, we would love for that to be our story. Cultivate a rich, secret life of prayer and fasting and disciplines that tether our lust for power. And then three, cultivate truth-telling friendships. It's very easy to be unhealthy by yourself. We all do it with flying colors. It's very easy to be unhealthy by yourself. It is impossible to be healthy by yourself. It's impossible to be healthy without the help of others. You have to have friends who know you and love you and see you and get you and can speak the hard and the kind truth to you. The Proverbs say the wounds of a friend are to be trusted. I have this, and I hope that you have this, people that you can confess your sin to. James 5.16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Why? So that you can be healed. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? Confess your sins to friends who love you, who will speak the truth to you. Name your wounds. With those friends, seek healing. And in all of these things, in this conversation about power, and, and, and we want to follow into the example of Jesus. And this is what Stephanie read for us. Who being in very nature God, 
did not regard equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every tongue should, uh, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess in heaven and on earth and above the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He who sat before all eternity at the right hand of his Father stooped to wash the feet, stooped and, and carried the cross, bore our shame. Him who had all the power in the world leveraged it to stoop and to serve when he could have demanded to be served. If the way of, the C- of Caesar taken to its logical conclusion is to torture and to kill, the way of Jesus taken to its logical conclusion is to allow oneself to be killed for the sake of others is to serve. Jesus said, no greater love has one than this, that they would lay down their life for their friends. And the way of Caesar and the way of Jesus meet at the cross. The cross, which was Caesar's greatest instrument of victory, was upturned, was defeated and destroyed and repurposed into something that people wear around their neck, something that's beautiful, because Jesus made it beautiful by turning the object of terror and and, and destruction into an object of supreme and divine love. The way of Caesar and the way of Jesus meet at the cross, and Jesus wins. We want to give our lives following in the way of Jesus. And as we're a new church, we, we are not arrogant enough to think that we know how to do this. We're not arrogant enough to think that we've got this down, but we're saying by, by saying we want to be a community shaped by the gospel. We say we want, our ambition is to follow in the way of Jesus together. This is the way that leads to life. We see how the way of Caesar is playing out, and it's not going well. We want to follow in the way of Jesus. It's the way that leads to the cross. And every week we tell the story of what makes us unique as a people and as a movement when we share at the table, how Jesus allowed himself to be humiliated so that we could be dignified. He allowed himself to be emptied so that we could be filled. He allowed himself to be in a place of scorn so that we could find our identity in the family of the Father. Allowed himself to be alienated so that we could be joined in with a new family of brothers and sisters. Jesus did all of this for us at the cross. What a beautiful stewardship of power. And for those of us who follow him, he says, you'll be blessed if you do likewise. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, thank you for the gift of yourself. Thank you for the gift of your, how you stewarded your power, saying this is how we do it in our family. Give us the grace to be aware of our power and yet not to be overcome by it or full of lust for it. Give us a deep sense of contentment for the power and the privilege that you've given us and help us to steward it so that others would flourish. Uh, Lord Jesus, I pray for the folks in this room who, who don't get what it means to be under your power, who've never submitted themselves to your lordship and your reign in their lives. And it sounds like cost, and it is. But it's also, you know, it's, it's, it's the only thing that gives life. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die, but in dying we find life. If any of you would save your life, you're going to lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Lord Jesus, I pray, and and maybe you're a person in this room where you've not submitted your life to Jesus, or you have run so far, you did it when you were 14 years old, and you've been on autopilot, and you need to restore that commitment today. 
Maybe in the quiet of your heart, you would say just, Lord Jesus, I want to be under your power. Lord Jesus, I want to submit myself to your way, but I need your help. Lord Jesus, send your spirit to equip me and enable me to live for you and to live with you. God, we trust you. We trust that this is your work, that this is your world, and you ultimately uh, will cause all things to be renewed, and we long for that day. But till that day, we, we pray that you'd come in power. Pray that you'd send your spirit and help your church to be an early sign, a teaser trailer of all that's to come, and you heal and you renew all things. In Jesus' name, amen.